0: Welcome back to DigiTalks. I am your host, Natalie, here for another episode. I'm super excited if we're still recording episodes, hopefully that means that you guys are enjoying what we've been talking about and the guests that I've had with me. And I assure you that today is no different. I'm super excited to have Luke Jamison here with me today. Nice to be here. Fun to be here. If anyone knows their way around the World Wide Web, it's Luke. Having over 20 years digital experience, no, he's not Tom from MySpace, but I tell you, he's got Got some stories. In addition to knowing SEO and PPC like the back of his hand, Luke has built more websites than I think I've had hot dinners. Casually on the side, he's also the co-founder of Global League Records. It's a bit of an interesting combination there, Luke, if I'm really honest.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, uh, you know, you'll find a lot of people in the music industry actually started off with a tech background. So I think it's a natural progression for a lot of people.
0: Well, I'm sure you can explain how that all came to be, but I'm sure this is the burning question. How has the space changed in 20 years? Take me back.
1: Okay, so the year I built my first website was 1997. Back then. I was six. It was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it... Uh, might not look my age, but it is It is unfortunately my age. We were doing things in Notepad back then. So, you know, you, there was no Squarespace. There was no Wix. There was no WordPress. There was just Notepad and HTML code. And you'd load up a little blank Notepad file and you'd be bracket, HTML, wow. bracket, and off you'd go. Everything was done by hand. Everything was done manually. And it took a really, really long time to do anything.
0: So a basic five-page website, let's say, content, no commerce, nothing? How long are you looking to build?
1: It would probably take us a week back then. You could obviously copy and paste some code you had through, but like we were designing the layouts in Photoshop. And in the very early days, you didn't have CSS. You couldn't necessarily make a graphic design element with CSS code. So you were designing everything up in Photoshop as an image.
0: Oh, wow. And you
1: would then slice images up and you'd cut out your header and your menu item. And each menu item was an image, you know, every layout element was an image.
0: Which as we know is not good for SEO.
1: No and it also wasn't good for load times or any of that stuff but you know you're on a 56k modem dial-up at that point as well so we were like connecting to the internet. There was no NBN, there was no ADSL, there was no high-speed internet. It was, I
0: used to love the sound of dial-up internet. i I'd it. sing along with it every time I'd connect.
1: <laughs> and you always knew something exciting was gonna happen because yeah. you're like oh, I'm connecting to the internet. Oh, what is this new strange world? <laughs> But yeah, it was it was really interesting. And I remember actually Photoshop brought out this groovy functionality where you could cut to web and you could actually like draw the lines in Photoshop around all of the different elements and go slice to web and it would export all of the images for you automatically in like a batch format. It's the little things, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: And when did you really start to see things picking up and progressing and becoming a lot quicker?
1: Well, in terms of speed and things progressing, it took a really, really long time. So like I first started when I was at school and then started doing websites while I was at uni for cash, while my friends were doing hospitality jobs or whatever. I was sitting at my mate's dad's kitchen table and we would tap away and make websites. From the notepad era, I guess we'd call it, then you had uh, Microsoft brought out FrontPage. So FrontPage was like the first kind of platform that you could use that wasn't manually coding everything and had a bit of an interface to help you out where you could drag and drop stuff. Not drag and drop elements like you can now with your visual builders, but it was dragging code basically. And then you also had Macromedia's Dreamweaver, which was the competitor to front page, which was a little bit easier to use and a little bit better. And you could switch between view and code elements and type some code in background and then click it. See what
0: it actually looked like. See what it looked like. That would have been a game changer at the time. It was.
1: Like when we're doing the notepad stuff, we actually had to code it all, use a file transfer protocol, which was called an FTP program at the time. And we'd need to have a development server or a computer set up. And we'd need to actually transfer the files from our desktop or our computer, wherever it was that we were doing it, drag it onto the server, load up the server, view the page, or we could view it offline on our own computers. But as soon as you had code and other bits and pieces, involved there. You had to upload it to a server to run the, the code. So it was all manual.
0: Did that mean that obviously there weren't as many people actually being able to produce websites?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you didn't know how to code, you couldn't really make a website.
0: Was code common?
1: Not really. Well, it was common in my circle because yeah. we were all doing IT at uni. Yeah. So everyone around me knew how to do it. Yeah. But again, you know, we were talking earlier before we started recording about how you have this level of assumed knowledge after a certain amount of time in an industry. Yeah. Yeah. And because everyone that I knew was doing it, you kind of just assume that everyone yeah. had a small understanding, but they Everyone they didn't.
0: knows how to custom code. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I wanna talk about how you actually started working with clients probably in more recently and how you really got them to understand and engage in the process because I think websites are one of these things where they can cost $2,000. They can cost, I think even you told me, Mm $100,000. How do you kind of explain to the client and get them invested in what the best outcome for them is?
1: You know, at the end of the day, it depends on what the client's looking to achieve. There are obviously different levels of web design in all facets of the industry. When we started in, you know, 2000, 2001, doing it commercially, it was at the kind of the mid of the dot-com bust. Yep. Um, so everyone had just had a couple of years of all of these big e-commerce sites, you know, $100,000, you know, plus these huge websites. Everything's been custom coded back then. Like there yep. wasn't any Magento or WooCommerce or whatever. Everything had just started to crumble in the US in like Silicon Valley and stuff. But here, everyone still wanted a website. Right. So back then the price was like, people were just like, I need a website, I'll just pay whatever. And you could p- pick a number out of the air basically and somebody was like, okay. Because no one had any, it was so new at that know. point, no one had any idea. Now, you've got everything from a free website with your your Wix or whatever, or your $24 a month subscriptions with Squarespace, or you've got an outsourcer on Upwork that'll pay, you know, 200 bucks, 500 bucks for a website, or you've got your agencies that might have 20 staff and a big office and have a lot of overheads. And so, realistically, a web design company will charge whatever they need to charge to make a profit. Mm. From the customer's perspective, that's a really interesting position to be in because you're like, well... I could pay this agency with 20 staff and a big flashy office 40 grand for a website or I could pay this guy on Upwork 500 bucks for a website. And for someone who doesn't know the difference, they're like, well, what is the difference?
0: Well, yeah, what is the difference? Like, are you getting the same product?
1: Well, not usually. You're getting a website at the end of the day, whether that website has security factored in, whether that website has support factored in, whether things have been coded efficiently, whether it loads quickly, whether it works properly on mobile devices and tablets and all of those sorts of things, whether there's analytics, whether there's tracking, whether there's tags set up to look at what people are doing and actions that are being taken. Yeah. All of that sort of stuff. So
0: but people don't know what they don't know.
1: Exactly. So you need to explain to your customers, okay, so for this price, this is what you get. If you're getting other quotes, make sure that you check what they are quoting on comparative to what someone else is quoting on because you're not always comparing apples with apples. Sometimes you're comparing an apple with a moldy pair
0: Yeah, um, pretty much.
1: And pretty until, much. sometimes until you get the product, you don't know. Um, and, for, you know, you, you talk about the Upwork situation. Mm. Sometimes you'll get a, a really good website done, but your developer might drop off the face of the earth, leave Upwork, get a job working for someone else and you might never be able to contact them. And you might not know what server your website's on. You might not know where your website's hosted. You might not know where your domain name is. You might not know your login details. You might not know anything about your site. And so we've had a lot of people come to us and be like, I got this cheap website done through an outsourcer or, you know, whoever. And they don't know how to access it anymore.
0: That's Mm. just mind-blowing that people don't even think to actually get all of that information when they get their website handed over. Because, yeah, what happens if that person like you say, they drop off the face of the earth, you need to, you need to update things. You need to make changes.
1: Yeah. So we still have clients now that we have most of their details, but sometimes they've registered their domain names with like GoDaddy or Crazy Domains or something. And they're like, yeah. oh, we need to we need to update this. You look after that for us, don't you? And we're like, no, you, no. you did that yourself. <laughs> you have the details in your email somewhere. And they're like, oh, yeah, here it is. I found it.
0: As security and like, you know, you're talking about tagging and tracking and all those kinds of things. As things have evolved over the past, I'd say probably what the seven to 10 years more so, how have you kind of gone from educating clients to go, well, the website that we built for you 15 years ago, that's not going to cut it. We actually need to do a lot more things to do that. And, and do they ever say, oh, well, we just, whatever you did before, you can just leave it like that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the time.
0: How do you combat that?
1: It's sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. you lose. Like the biggest thing is mobile responsiveness. Like if you've designed a website 15 years ago, that was at the very beginning, I guess, of mobile technology and responsiveness. iPhone 3 with the actual Google Maps and stuff came out, I think, in 2004 or 2005. Like, yeah, I
0: was working at Vodafone. I did the iPhone 3 launch in Wembley oh, Mall. There you Iconic. go. Iconic.
1: Yeah, so, you know, until that happened, people couldn't even look at websites on a mobile. Uh,
0: Blackberries.
1: Yeah, it was an excellent experience. I don't know if you remember how good websites looked on a Blackberry.
0: Foul. <laughs> Absolutely foul. Don't even ask me why I thought it'd be a good idea to get a Blackberry. Like I said, it was pre-iPhone. So it's... it's yeah. Forgive me. I want to understand a little bit more because obviously you started with the coding and obviously you got more into the digital marketing and sort of Mm -hmm. the strategy side of things. How did you then get back into more so primarily websites?
1: So our journey in the beginning, so Google, I think, was invented in around 1998. Okay. And that happened while I was at university. And before then, it was Infoseek, it was Yahoo, it was AltaVista. There were all these other search...
0: AltaVista, yes! There
1: were all these other search engines that people were using. And this Google came out. People were like, have you heard about this new search engine? This it's just Google like, thing. It's just like a search box. There's nothing else there because the others all had ads and stuff on them. Like They had menu items and they were, mm. they were very busy. And Google came out and they're like, just the word Google went a search box with the word search. And everyone's like, okay, this is a bit weird. Like, what else do you do with it? Um... But here we are today, you know, all these years later and Google is the dominant search engine. But before that happened, there wasn't like search engine optimization wasn't really a thing. And so we just started building all these websites. As, you know, over maybe four or five years uh, evolved, obviously Google and the other search engines got bigger and bigger and people became more... I think Google was really the, the thing that helped people become familiar with searching. So before Google... People wouldn't really search. They'd just type in the web address and go to wherever they wanted to go and they found out about websites from, you know, ads and magazines yeah. and whatever. It wasn't probably until, I'd say, around 2005, 2006 when clients started coming to us saying, oh, I want to be at the top of Google. Like, I, my, my, my site can't be found in Google. I'm like, okay, I'm like, how do I get there? I'm like, I don't know. great
0: just- question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just build the things, you know. We don't- yeah. So that was probably the first foray into search engine optimization." And at that time, there was a keyword tag and you just whack a bunch of stuff in a keyword tag and your site would go bing and pop up at number one. So it was really easy at the start. And obviously, not every website was doing it then. So it was very, very easy to get a site ranking highly in Google without having to do a lot of work. And so we just put a few keywords here and and away we'd go. What then happened was you. This was in the era of MP3 downloads as well, so a bit of crossover here with the record label stuff, I guess. People were looking for free MP3 downloads, so people would put free MP3 download in a, a keyword tag for an accountant because they wanted to get all the traffic for all the people searching for free MP3 downloads. Now, oh
0: my god! From a
1: from like a conversion and a business perspective, it makes no sense. But your website was ranking number one for all these things, so there'd be things like Pamela Anderson in a in a keyword tag because Pammy at the time was very big. And a lot of people were searching Google for Pamela Anderson.
0: That is crazy. How frustrating.
1: So you just put it in your keyword tag and your website would appear on the top 10, you know, for Pamela Anderson. Google <laughs> Google very quickly worked out over time that, you know, keyword stuffing was a thing and they changed their algorithms and stuff so that they actually looked at what was in that tag, compared it to what your business website was actually about and um, said, no, no, that's not relevant. So we're not going to rank you for that. And that was kind of the first evolution of that before they ended up, I think, in 2000 and 17 or something, they dropped the keyword tag as a as a metric in their thing. So, yeah, right. Yeah.
0: And then that kind of then shifted to, I guess, SEO as it is today.
1: Yeah. So I can't remember what year it was before ads came out, but like there wasn't, Google ads weren't a thing either. And I remember when Google ads first announced like, you can actually now advertise in our search engine mm. and appear above all the SEO stuff. And everyone that had been doing SEO was like, oh crap, you know, <laughs> now there's something else to to oh, it's be like in social the media. There's always
0: something new exactly. every day,
1: right? You know, it, it was very primitive at the start, the ads as well, and very cheap at the start. You could get a lot of stuff for like 30 cents, 10 cents a click. Like, it was crazy. You could get, we had clients that were getting hundreds and hundreds of clicks for, you know, 20 bucks, 30 bucks. Wow. And that obviously as that became more popular and the platform evolved, it got more and more expensive and more and more competitive and, and all of that sort of stuff as well. And yeah, it wasn't probably until the late 2000, I guess that content really became maybe 2007, 2008, The like actually having content that was readable on your site. Because once the keyword thing sort of wasn't as prevalent as it was in the early days, and people are know, you've got to have good content as well. Like your content's got to have the keyword in it, not just this one tag in the yep. code. But then, you know, and it's still happening today, you have like uh, maybe it's a, a real estate agent in Adelaide. It's like our real estate agents in Adelaide are the best real estate agents in Adelaide and yeah. our Adelaide real estate agents are the best. Have you, are you looking for a real estate agent in Adelaide? And you just like from a user experience, it's like, this is horrible. But in the early days, the search engines would pick that up and be like, well, this looks relevant. <laughs> Dang, number one. <laughs>
0: this ticks a <the> box. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad you said that because where is the fine line between like content for SEO and usability and actually making sense? Because I feel like so many people write things like that and it's like, whoa.
1: Yeah. Google's done really well in that aspect, I think. Like it's made it harder for SEOs and harder for copywriters, but their focus has been over the recent years on the user experience. And that's where, you know, your secure certificates with your website come in, your speed of your website, whether or not it's mobile optimized. You know, I think it was maybe two years ago, I just got a host of notifications from Google being like, your site has switched to mobile first indexing now. So basically it's using the mobile version because people browsing the web on mobile has increased so much over the last probably five years yeah. that they now look at the mobile version of your website to rank First. it because more people are looking at your website on a mobile. So yeah, it's it's been a crazy sort of evolution, but Google's really done a good job, I think, in making sure that the user experience for the customer is what they're focusing on because they quickly realize that if you're going to search for something in Google and a site pops up, and you click that search result and you go to a page and you can't read it and it's all spammy and crappy you're probably just going to click back and go and if they can't keep you using Google and finding good results you're going to go find your information elsewhere maybe go to Bing or something
0: yeah does anyone actually use Bing about
1: 10% of people yeah
0: <laughs> just, but, actually I was going to tell you I was on the computer the other day and I don't know why but my search bar changed to Bing mm-hmm. like, what is going on like why has this happened I'm, I'm just I've never used Bing in my life one of the Chrome extensions I must have downloaded automatically switched it over. Like that is classic, that is sneaky.
1: Classic, classic Chrome extension.
0: But how does how does that work? So how can how can a Chrome extension change my search bar?
1: You know when you sometimes load up Chrome's like, this is not your preferred browser, would you like it to be your preferred browser and you yeah. can click yes or no? So that functionality is built into the browser. If you're installing a Chrome extension that has access to you know, the API of Chrome or whatever, most of those browser extensions do. That's how they work. Of course. If you're sneaky, you can just put a bit of code in your extension that says set the default browser to be something else. And that's how that's how a lot of viruses work. You know, sometimes you'll load up and you'll be like, what is this? This isn't Chrome or Bing or anything I'm familiar with. This is like Sally's search the best search on the internet. And you're yeah. like, "What the hell? how did this get on my computer?
0: I could be really um, naive in saying this, but a virus is still like a big thing because I use Mac and I use that for mm-hmm. that particular reason. Yep. I mean, not that I really go on anything overly interesting, but I remember back in the day, LimeWire, mm-hmm. the amount of viruses we used to get from that thing. I think I broke my mum's computer like four times.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, Macs definitely make it harder. You can still get viruses on Macs, especially now that there's a lot more blockchain and crypto stuff. There's a lot of, you know, the technology is getting so advanced now that there are some people that can sneak some things in. So there are actually antiviruses for a Mac. I downloaded one recently because I had an incident (laughs) that I had to. Ah,
0: see, no one's safe.
1: No, no one's safe.
0: No one's safe.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely still a thing on PCs, especially. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like
0: PCs are definitely more prone. But -hmm. again, I'm, once you go Mac, you don't go back.
1: Because we made websites, we had a lot of people like, you know computers, can you fix my computer? And we'd be like, sure, sure, bring it in, we'll have a look. And the number of people that were just like, I don't know what's going on, I've just got pop-ups galore, I've got my my computer's doing strange things, I load it up, there's stuff flashing and closing and opening all over the place. And we're like, all right, what websites have you been going to? What have you downloaded? And usually it was either MP3s, LimeWire or like Napster or it was porn sites and people had... Be like, have you been downloading any porn? And they'd be like, oh, No, 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 no. I'm like,
0: yeah. yeah, I think you have. Think you
1: might, <laughs> think you might have been.
0: <laughs> I find it really funny because I do think it's the same thing with socials as well. When someone goes, "Cool, you build websites, you work on computers, you must be a computer tech."
1: Yeah, my printer's not working. Why isn't my printer working? Your IT. I don't know what sort of printer have you got.
0: Do you feel over, in? especially during that time when people were so uneducated? Do you feel like it was a big part of your role to educate people on? where the limitations are and what your role actually is.
1: Yeah, still, every day. I don't think there's been a moment in the last 21 years or whatever it's been that I haven't had to educate someone about something. And even now that websites are commonplace, everyone, nearly every business has had one at some point in their life. That's still a constant battle every day.
0: I think your story is really interesting because you do have that marketing understanding as mm-hmm. well in developers. And website designing and website building are two very different things. Yeah. And I think what can get lost in translation is, yeah, cool. Something's been built, but is it actually effective?
1: And again, it comes back to kind of what we were talking about at the start, is that like with developers, they will put functionality in place, but they won't necessarily make it look good. Mm. I mean, it's getting a lot better now, but like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you could have a developer build a a checkout page for a shopping cart because you had to build them yeah. from scratch. And the buttons would be all different shapes and sizes and colors and everything we jammed up real close together. Oh, but as long God. as it worked and and performed the functionality that it was designed to do, the developer had done their job. They'd made it functional in the way that it needed to function. Yeah. It didn't always look the best. It didn't always have the best user experience. Technology has changed a lot too. In the last few years, which has made a designer be able to do a lot more of that stuff. And I was thinking about this last night after you sent, you know, the questions through to, for me to get up to speed with what I, what we we're going to be, you know, <laughs> have a bit of prep, bit of prep for the I'm podcast. I'm still
0: putting you on the spot. Don't worry.
1: Yeah, yeah, a bit of prep for the podcast, and I was like, do you know what? Even though Squarespace and Wix and and WordFence, no, WordPress and stuff.
0: I was going to say, what's WordFence? (laughs) Is there another one?
1: Yeah, it's a security plugin for WordPress.
0: Ah, well, there you go.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Actually, it's very useful. It uh, has an IP, if you have the premium version, it has an IP. No, not sponsored by WordPress. I was going to say,
0: you're getting commission
1: on this. No, no sponsorship here. It has an IP blacklist. So it picks up all the different IPs around the world that are potentially hacking websites and it picks up, you know, this guy in, you know, Russia or whatever's hacking in, and it can actually then push that IP out, address out to every single person using WordFence, and that person can't access your website. Wow. Yeah. It's a live global IP blacklist, which is pretty cool. Well, there you go. A yeah, little side note. With Wix and, Squ- and Squarespace and WordPress, even though you've got the visual builders and you've got the drag and drop editors and you mm-hmm. can click and drag things around, behind all of that pretty facade is code. Yes. Right? So you've got people building that code in the background that then allows you to say, when when I click this color icon, this purple icon, and I want to change the button, there's some code behind that that is making that happen. Of course, yeah. So even though we're living in a world where designers can do stuff really quickly and easily and do the front end of a website, without the developers building that functionality and that technology to be able to do that, we'd still be writing stuff down in Notepad.
0: I was going to say, bring back, <laughs> bring back Notepad. <laughs> we are so fortunate that we can create websites the way that we can now, you know, Squarespace and things like that. But I still, and I mean, obviously, you're going to agree with this, but I still think there is such a place for getting it done properly if you do need certain functionality. Because there are errors that come up sometimes Mm -hmm. in these front-end builders. All the time. And especially if you're looking at commerce, and I think, you know, commerce is a very unique space as well where the user experience is critical. Mm -hmm. If you're not spending the money to get that optimised, then you can't expect that to work properly.
1: Yeah. I was at a conference many, many years ago and um, a lady at the time was talking about checkouts and it was about abandoned carts. She was like, even a really good website maybe converts at 10%, even if it's like super, super optimized. Unless you're converting 100% of people that arrive on your website, your shopping cart is broken. Yep. So like, even if you're getting 10% conversion rate, that means 90% of people arriving on your site are leaving. Yep. If you're not converting everyone, there's something that there's a reason why they're leaving. So your shopping cart is broken. And exactly that was right. a super interesting thing that I'd never thought about it that way before. I'd like, 10% that's a wicked conversion rate. Like you're crushing it at that point.
0: But this is the thing, right? Like 10% conversion rate. Yeah, but what's that actually in numbers? Like what? So you're telling me you're getting 50 million people to your site. Where are they all going? Mm. Why aren't they staying?
1: Yeah. Doorbell rang.
0: Yeah. Phone rang. That's the thing. That's phone, the thing. Phone dinged. And I think that's where, you know, and again, you and I have talked about this before, but like having that full circle strategy to go, Mm -hmm. all right, yeah, cool, the website's great, but are we doing a band of cart emails? Are we doing brief Facebook retargeting? Have we got a really good social strategy? Have we got a good community? Like, nothing works in isolation.
1: Yeah, look, I don't want to keep going back to like the nostalgia of when things first happened. When Google launched retargeting, I think, believe they were the first people to do it. And they're like, you can actually put this code on your website and when someone leaves, you can follow them around on news.com.au or whatever with an ad in the sidebar.
0: It's crazy, isn't it?
1: mine's just blue. And, you know, even to this day, people still don't realise that that's happening. They're like, oh, I looked at these shoes the other day and now I'm seeing them everywhere. What a coincidence.
0: Or like when you talk about something and then you get the ad and it's like, come on.
1: I don't even have to talk about things. I just have to think about something now and it pops up on my phone.
0: But I love it. I don't know about you. Do you Do you personally choose to not be tracked? Some things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know. Sometimes I just get a bit of a bee in my bonnet and I'm like, no.
0: <laughs> you can't follow me. I
1: don't want personalised ads. Show me irrelevant <laughs> things so I don't feel like I'm being traced. But then, you know, at the end of the day, it is kind of helpful. If you're looking at trips to Hawaii and then they send you an ad for a flight to Hawaii, that's useful, right? Right. (laughs) But yeah, then there are other times when you're just like, stop it.
0: It's about being relevant. Yeah. And I think obviously with all the changes with Meta at the moment as well, you know, the the ability to be able to target obviously has been changed as well. Yeah. But I'm like you. I love it when it's relevant. Like if I'm looking for, for example, I wanted to buy a new trench coat, looking for a trench coat, all these new brands get coming up, particularly in my Instagram stories. And I'm like, yes, this is actually good. Like I'm finding new brands. I'm getting so really relevant ads. But then it's when you talk about something stupid and then all of a sudden on Facebook, I get, yeah, something weird. I'm like, this is not okay. And then when you're in Burnside and the Zara thing comes up and it knows you're there, that freaks me out.
1: Or you go to the airport and your bank sends you a push notification be like, we noticed you're at the airport. Do you need to notify us of your upcoming travel?
0: Oh, I haven't had that. That's Mm. a little bit much. Yeah. What what do you think is the future of Google with the the data side of things?
1: Well, that's a question.
0: I know. Well, they talked about reining things back in and giving us a little bit more power back, but ha- that's their business model.
1: So when Google first started, they were quite public about the fact that they had this motto internally, which was do no evil, I think. or something along the lines of do no evil.
0: Do no evil. What are they, a cult?
1: Well, no, it was like, you know, There were, obviously, when you're doing coding and stuff, there's a lot of, and you just got to look at kind of where Meta went with what's happened over there. And they were like, we wanted to be the good guys. They wanted to be the good guys. Yeah, okay. And there's been a lot of blog posts and a lot of conversation around whether or not Google can still be considered to have been doing no evil with all the data they've collected and how they use it. That's probably a discussion for another day. Yes. But um, in terms of what they do with that data, like, You know, there's already some pretty crazy stuff. Like if you go into your Gmail and you go to your settings, you can go to your search history and everything, right? So like if you don't know about that, I would say probably 90% of people using Gmail, maybe even more. Yeah. They have no idea that you can go in and someone can get your Gmail login and they can see everything you've ever searched for. Yeah. For like the last however many years. And I think you can set it to be like delete after three months as the default.
0: But again, who knows that? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Or you can say, do not track my search history. Yeah. Which was actually, it's funny to bring this, it kind of relates to some stuff we talked about earlier with SEO. There was a time, I don't think it's as relevant now. It it could be, and I've just forgotten about it. But like there was a time where you would search for stuff in Google and your search results would change based on what you had typed in, right? So we could have, because we were looking at websites all the time for our clients. Yeah. It would rank higher. Because we were always on that site and searching for that site when we're doing SEO because we're testing it, right? So we've optimized the page and then we're typing in the search phrase for that particular page to see where it comes up. And because we were like clicking on it to make sure that it was all working and whatever, that page would naturally be high for us. So there was a time like in the mid-2000s where we'd send an SEO report to a client and we'd be like, this is where your site's currently ranking. At the top of the page. And they'd be like, it's, it's number seven for me. And we're like, well, it's number one for us. And it actually... How frustrating. But it also worked the other way, right? So if there was a client that was super like anal about where their rankings were and they were checking all the time where their site ranked... Which they all do. Yeah. (laughs) It would be like higher, it would be higher for them. And we'd send through a report that's like, oh, you're currently number four for, you know, accounting Westlake or whatever it was. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, but it's number one for me and that was when personalized browsing started coming in and that was kind of the first evolution of data and retargeting and stuff is that they'd look for what you were searching for and show you personalized results based on your search history
0: relevant mm. is it does it still work like that to a degree i don't know i need yeah, to, i need I'm to look not.
1: into it a bit more i don't think it is exact it like there's still personalized ads and stuff yeah um but in terms of seo i think it's changed a fair bit i longer. know when I you haven't do noticed as much.
0: when you search something like near me or whatever, mm. everyone's is obviously different. But I realized my IP address is set in Sydney and I have no idea why. So I went to do something near me the other day and it came up with something in like Parramatta. I'm like, well, I yeah. won't be going there anytime soon. But we, I mean, we have it all the time. Clients being like, I'm certain, not that we do heaps of SEO, but clients being like, oh, I searched someone so near me and it's not coming up. And because you and I are going to see different things. yeah. But I think that's also like the beauty.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's getting back to Google providing the best result for the searcher. That's kind of what they're doing. Like it's tricky when you're traveling internationally and all of a sudden you're searching for, and like, especially when you're operating as a digital nomad.
0: Yeah. And you're
1: trying to do SEO for a particular website and you're trying to check stuff and you're just getting Croatian stuff and, you know,
0: So can Spanish you change anything stuff. in your settings? Yeah,
1: you can. You can, you, you can change your location. Yeah, okay. Or you can use a VPN.
0: Do you think that social media has changed the way that people look at Google and websites as a whole?
1: Yep. 100%. That was the
0: quickest yes. I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you've got, if you're an influencer and you've got 200,000 followers on Instagram, I can see why you would be like, why do I need a website?
0: Mm.
1: Why do I, what why do I care about ranking number one in Google if everyone's just or we're already seeing what I'm posting, you know, algorithmic stuff aside. Mm you know, there's been many brands who have experienced accounts getting shut down, getting shadow banned, you know, algorithm changes. And all of a sudden you're seeing the same posts over and over and you're not seeing anything new. Like it can change very quickly. Very quickly. And so there's obviously that argument of owned media versus borrowed media, I guess. I don't know what the, you know, the correct phrase better than yeah. I am in terms of social, but like, no, no, that's spot on. you know, Facebook can shut down at any moment through the label. We've seen artists with huge followings not be able to reach anyone because Facebook decided to change the way they operated. It's scary. Yeah. The type of website you have is very important for each business and how you use it is very important. But I think provided that you have it set up in a way that it benefits your business, there's always a use case for a website depending on what you're trying to achieve.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think any, any business who is trying to get inquiry
1: mm-hmm.
0: or trying to um, be perceived in a certain way it's a non-negotiable. Yeah. I don't care if it's two pages. Yeah. You just need something that looks professional, that is functional, and that is going to convert if that is your end game. But, yeah. you know, I'd say that 90% of people it is.
1: If you have a product or a service that you're offering, if you're even if you're an influencer, you've usually got a product or a service. Yeah. It's much easier to have a website to deep dive into the nitty gritties of the product or the information and read more and, you know, have videos on there, you know, collect it all together rather than social, which is kind of a... a introduction yeah. to what you're doing. High level. Yeah. High level. Yep. And you got
0: to dig deep if you want to get more information. And the reality is, you know, people don't have time to be sitting there going, I need to, I'm trying to find the information. Whereas at least on a website, it's like, cool, you're telling me what the key things that I need to be looking at are.
1: And also, usually the end user is in a different mindset at mm. that time. If they're reading a content on a website, they're in a, an information gathering phase versus Sometimes when you're looking at stuff on social media platform, you're just in a browsing, mind-numbing, you People know.
0: scroll at 80Ks an hour. I think mm. that's the average now.
1: You know what? Something really weird happened to me when I had COVID. I would get motion sick scrolling through my yes. phone. Yes.
0: I had the same thing. Oh. I couldn't even look at the screen. No,
1: I would I would load up Instagram. I'd do two or three swipes and i like, I feel sick.
0: That's because he was scrolling at 80Ks an hour. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. You're exactly right. I think people neglect the fact that there is a, although it's not the traditional sales funnel, there is a sales funnel. Yeah. Now, social media has absolutely ruined it, but we need to know how we can be connecting at each stage effectively. Yeah. Now, if all roads lead to the website, what needs to be there?
1: Well, you need to have a call to action that actually captures the user's details. Or yep. you need to have can a re- we own that. Or you need to have a Facebook or a, a Google retargeting code. So once they leave your website, you can still follow them around and take them back to your website mm-hmm. where there's that call to action that might be a you know a download or it might be a newsletter or it might be a Opted in for a competition or it could be, you know.
0: Any, a piece of string. Exactly.
1: Any, <laughs> any number of hundreds of thousands of things. But yeah. you can provide that value. You can get their details. You can build a mailing list. You can get an inquiry. Yeah, you can tag them and follow them around.
0: Do you think mailing lists are incredibly underappreciated?
1: I switch my mindset around mailing lists all the time. I think they are super, super important because you need to have that list of people that are interested in your product but you also need to put the time in to nurture those people. Mm. If you spend three years building a mailing list and never contact them and then all of a sudden out of the blue you send an email, 20% of them drop off, you know, unsubscribe straight away. So whilst it is super important, it's not the end of the journey, it's the beginning of the journey and you need to nurture those people and actually provide value. You know, likewise, if you're just constantly bombarding them with offers, you know, I bought some shoes a while back on Reebok website. And all I got every two days was like buy more stuff.
0: Yes yeah, and I'm like
1: unsubscribe straight away. But
0: I think that's where again, factoring in the the sales journey and the yeah. customer journey When you can actually personalize things in a different way to make sure it's relevant, like they would have been better off sending you things about, you know, if you bought a pair of running shoes, some articles about running and how to, you know, start training for your running again. And I think this is where people don't appreciate content marketing
1: and having that strategy and the marketing strategy. Like everyone talks about, you got to be on Instagram or you got to be on TikTok or this is where you've got to be or that way. They're all just tools to implement a strategy. Like you need a plan of what your goal is. All right, I need to take people from A to B there's a whole lot of steps along that journey and all of these different platforms fit within that journey at some stage yes. of it. And you need to work out, all right, so when people are on this platform, this is the kind of mindset they're in. This is how we get them from that step to the next step. Mm-hmm. Once we've got them here, how do we get them from that step to the next step? Yeah. And all of those tools need to work together in a harmonious
0: yep. thing. But yeah. a lot of the time that doesn't happen. You know, The amount of people that I meet and I say straight off the bat, Have you spent the time to map out your customer journey? Mm -hmm. What do you think they're looking for at each stage? Oh.
1: Yeah. No, I haven't. Who who are you targeting? Oh, everyone.
0: Everyone.
1: (laughs) That's my favorite one. I want everyone. Who's your audience? Everyone.
0: So what I love about Website Boss and the way that you've structured your business is that the briefing process is really thorough. Can you talk Mm -hmm. us through that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Well, we basically um, will contact a new customer and they'll say, I want a website. And we'll say, okay, cool. Why do you want a website? Me too. Yeah, usually. Why do, you, why do you want a website? Um, uh, I don't have one. Okay, cool. So you probably could use one. Um, what do you provide? What service? What product? Are uh, your customers of an age? Sometimes you have an elderly demographic. and to legitimate you know, question. Doris probably isn't loading <laughs> up the website to find her own nursing home, but you might be targeting the children Correct. off Doris. So we go through and we talk to them about what their who their audience is, what their business objectives are through the website, eliminating some of the customer service questions, uh, addressing objections that people might have over contacting a business. So if you can, if you can alleviate most of the stresses of someone, because clicking that inquiry button a lot, it's, it's strange. And you know, I have had anxiety a lot in my life. And sometimes the button text will be like, book. And you're like, what am I booking? I'm committing. I'm committing. But what if, you know, put your phone number in. And like, oh, do I want them to call me? Or do oh,
0: I? I hate when phone number is like a um, mandatory field. Yeah. I'm like, no.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, you've got to work out, do your audience prefer to make a call? In which case your call to action on your site might be a giant phone number somewhere or do they prefer to inquire and do you need more information? Then you might need a form and a, you know, or an application process. Or yeah. Maybe you want to brief people, or not brief people, screen people first. So maybe you want to do an, an introductory call when you want to book a Zoom on a calendar link or something and yeah. um, screen people. But yeah, so we talk about, Who their audience is, what they're trying to achieve through their website, what the customer journey is. So like, what are they looking for in order to make a buying decision or an inquiry decision? And then we work from there, basically into building out a solution that hits all of those objectives.
0: Do you find it challenging when, and I think this probably goes for a number of different disciplines, but I feel like with websites as well, because it is something that is so forward-facing, similar to social media, they think that they're talking to someone that they're probably not or they think that things are important that you after even mapping out that customer journey can clearly see that's not necessary.
1: Connecting it back to SEO again as well is like using internal lingo and jargon. And, you know, they'll have acronyms for things that they use in the office that they want to make really abundant on the website. And you're like, what does your customer say? Yeah, do they 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 use
0: the same word? Do they ask
1: you for that acronym? Yeah. It's really hard because a lot of customers as well wouldn't want to pay for copywriting, right? They don't want to pay for someone else to write the words, oh, I know my product better than anyone, yeah. so I'll write it. But then you end up getting an engineer's report of, you know, a service or a product rather than something that actually makes you want to buy it. It's like, yeah. oh, cool. It's a common one about the, when iPhone, uh, Apple sorry, brought out the iPod and they didn't say this is a 256 megabyte, blah, 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 blah device. They said you can have a thousand songs in your pocket. Sold. Something like that. You're like, oh, sweet, that sounds good. Yeah. You know, And that's the difference between copywriting and a a customer saying, well, this is what we think is important. Yeah. So it's a delicate balance. You obviously need to have all of those important things that the the customer or the client thinks is important, but then you also need to write it and portray it in a way with the appropriate images and the appropriate layout and the appropriate words that actually make the person who wants that product or service to be engaged with it and make contact.
0: And I think that's what can get quite challenging with SEO as well because... What people are searching for, exactly like you say, is not necessarily how you would describe it. Yeah. There has to be, there has to be somewhere in the middle. You know, we we're having this conversation internally this week. Apparently, Mocktail isn't cool anymore. Oh. Nobody says Mocktail, guys. It's non-alcoholic cocktail. Oh. But Mocktail has over half a million searches a month. Yeah. So, obviously, you have to factor that into your website. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying we have to have plastered on the heading Mocktail, but do you not want to leverage that?
1: From SEO as well. Like I remember, we did a um, we did a project for a jewelry company. Everyone was spelling jewelry wrong, right? Oh, that's and my
0: pet my pet peeve. <laughs> this was
1: this was kind of before semantic related indexing and stuff. Like Google's very good now that if you type a word and you spell it American or UK or you spell it incorrectly, it's smart enough to know what you mean. Yeah. But in the early days, it made a difference. So you could spell jewelry the American way, or you could spell it the Australian way, and you could get two different results. Yeah. Based on how you spelt it. And so from an SEO perspective, we were saying to the client, most people spell it wrong and you want to spell it right on your site, of course, because you don't want to look like you can't spell your own. You don't want to (laughs) spell, you want to be able to spell your own product, right? Yeah. (laughs) So that was a really tricky battle. And we're like, okay, so how do we do this? Back in the early days with the keywords, you could just put a misspelling in the keyword and it would appear in the keyword tag, in the meta tag. Once that stopped being as prevalent, it became a lot harder and you're like, maybe you'd put an alt tag on an image where it was spelled wrong. Or you'd, you know, try and sneak it in here and there. Yeah, where it's not visible. Where it's not visible. But yeah, that's one of, you know, just one example of something that back in the day was really hard to navigate. It's a lot easier now because you can say, um, this could be a speaker, you know, in, we're here in the studio, there's a speaker. Yeah. But some people call them monitors. Like people in the music industry call them monitors.
0: You call that a monitor? Yeah. Wow. So like, see, I learn something new every day, guys. This
1: screen on the desk is a monitor.
0: Yeah, that's how. I think. This speaker see. is
1: a monitor. So if you type in studio monitor what are you going to get? Yeah. Google's smart enough to know that if the word studio is next to the monitor, you're probably referring to a speaker. Yeah.
0: I just love when you type something and you have so many spelling mistakes and it works out what you mean. It's like, God, you know me well. (laughs) You know, I'm always going to spell that wrong. Or like I have a a number instead of a letter because I'm trying to do 10 things at once and still get my results. Perfect. I really want to talk about global League because I feel like Mm -hmm. this is obviously something that you're super passionate about, but I feel like it's with everything going on with Meta at the moment, and I don't know if anyone listening, if you've been getting notifications that your videos have been blocked on Instagram, I'm talking videos from years ago. We know why it's licensing. And Luke can tell us a little bit more about that.
1: I can tell a little bit more. By no means an expert on licensing, but we're pretty up We're pretty up with the, the main topics. If you're including a song in a video and you're not using it through the platform, you're adding it, you know, on iMovie or some app on your phone, you're not actually linking that audio to the audio file that the platforms like Instagram and Meta are able to associate with the correct license holder. So each of those platforms have licensing deals with each of those, with like labels, with the major labels, with independent labels, with distributors. So if you're searching for a song on Instagram or TikTok and you select it from the sounds, that is connecting that sound with the rights holder and it knows how many videos, how many streams, how many plays... And based on each of those individual relationships, those, whichever platform it is will pass a percentage of that revenue on to the rights holder. So if you're adding the song in a video and uploading it, those platforms have no way of really knowing whether or not it's the official version. Is it a remix? Is it yep. a ripped version? Is it, you know. So that's why a lot of those things are getting blocked.
0: I'm really glad that you mentioned about actually uploading it within the app. And everyone's response to that is always, well, whenever I go to Creative Reel, I've only got crappy songs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why is that?
1: Do you mean like when you've got a business account? Yes. And it comes up and it's like guitar number five.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, where's Justin Bieber? And I you're want like the searching. Cool songs. You're searching for Justin Bieber and it's like, Did you mean guitar number five?
0: Is that you're because like, of licensing?
1: Yeah. So like if you're a commercial business, you need to have a license to use music. Classic one here in, in Australia is the Jeep Don't Hold Back with the yeah. pop belly song. You know, they paid a lot of money over the years for that. And I think they ended up purchasing it outright. So they the own artists. that song. So Jeep now own that song.
0: Well, I guess it's kind of iconic. It's part of the brand now, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And instead of like paying a licensing fee for every TV commercial and every different campaign they run, they're now like, we can use it unlimited because we just bought it off the pot bellies. Yeah, so presumably they're also making the revenue from the streaming. I don't it obviously depends on the deal. But if someone's listening to that song on Spotify, I'm presumably Jeep are getting paid for it now.
0: I'll tell you what, there is one little catch. If you are wanting better songs, switch to a creator account. You'll still be able to get relatively better ones, but you still don't get the full suite of options. But it's frustrating because especially with reels, it's like, I, you know, you want to be creating better ones yeah. and, you know, you want to be utilizing these trends and it's it's frustrating and then you have no choice but to go rip it and do it on iMovie and then upload it and then mm. what for it to get blocked?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Certain brands will pay tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for a hit song. So. Unfortunately, a case of where technology has outpaced the music industry once again because, you know, you can have a brand account on Instagram and if you were a brand and you were doing a TV ad, you would need a license. But if you've got a brand Instagram account or a business Instagram account and you're putting an ad for your business up, it's the same concept. It's just a different medium.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree from a paid advertising point of view. Like I would always say to clients, we never put spend behind something that... (laughs) that uses music that we do not own because it just it's it's not it's not right. Yeah. But I think from an organic space, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Like it's 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 really blurry.
1: If you're creating a reel, I mean, and then you kind of get into very murky waters of what is an ad. Yeah. Like you're creating a reel and you're just talking about you know five ways to do this. Yes, okay. it's content. Yeah. But technically, you're advertising your business and what your skills are, right? So mm. it's like, where does that fit on the scale of things? Yeah.
0: where do you see the music industry adapting to this side of things? Because I don't, and again, I could be wrong, but I don't think that just going and blocking things is really going to do anyone any favours.
1: Look, it's very easy to sort of look at Meta and Instagram and all of those platforms and be like, they're all the devil. They're all, you know, mean. But at the end of the day, they do have the musicians and the creators' interests somewhat at heart. Obviously, they take a, probably take a fit, I don't know. I haven't seen agreements with any of those mm. um, social media platforms, but my assumption is they would be taking a fair cut of whatever the revenue is coming through from those things. Um, they're obviously passing some on to the creator, which is great for the creator because previously you'd never get paid for that sort of stuff. And it's only been a f- like the last few years that those platforms have started making those deals with major labels and independent labels and distributors in order to actually be able to do that.
0: Really? That seems that seems very outdated.
1: Well, Spotify only came around, I think, in 2012. Yeah, so, right. you know, it's, it's 10 years, I guess, since that kind of came about and everyone's trying to catch up. You know, the music industry traditionally has been a very slow-moving beast um, and there's a lot of middle players. And for a lot of those big organisations and associations and whatever, it takes a long time for them to change oh, and adapt. So, you know, someone puts a song in Uzbekistan on a TikTok how does a rights holder in Australia or the UK how do they know you know how does that previously you'd never have any idea mm. so at least now if they're doing it on Facebook you can kind of claim the royalties what they should be doing is not taking it down just paying people for it yeah but i think the platforms like Meta are trying to figure out how do we how do we get the revenue mm. to on on pay it like how does that dynamic work and So, you know, um, they've got a whole music division now that's working on that stuff.
0: Wow, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So most of these big platforms have music divisions now where they're trying... I need TikTok. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which makes sense.
1: So everyone's trying to do their best. It's just it's a very... It's not an easy solution.
0: It's hard too because I feel like with the music industry in particular, social media has made it so much easier to get yourself out there. Yeah. I shudder to think about how musicians ever made it before social media. Even YouTube was the thing. I often say, if YouTube was around when I was a kid, I'd be I'd be famous. You know, you see these kids now, the seven year olds dancing, and I'm like, I wasn't dancing, but I can sing. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, you kind of have to go. We're appreciative; it's a free platform, and we're getting this exposure. But where do you draw the line and say, "I now I need to be remunerated"?
1: Yeah, it was, for my work. Even you know, talking about when Facebook kind of cut their reach for business pages or artist pages. Yep. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a conference. People were complaining. It was about the time where Facebook really cut back the reach.
0: Everyone said organic reach was dead.
1: Exactly. But it's not. It was that time. This old muso got up. He must have been in his late 50s, early 60s. And he's like, do you know what we had to do to get in front of people? We had to walk down the street and find a prominent building, abandoned building, and paste like a poster on it and hope that people driving past would see it and that they would be within our target." demographic. He's like, we'd have to pay for newspaper articles. We'd have to pay for magazine articles. All yeah. of the, all of this stuff. He's like, you guys can pay five bucks to boost your post and reach, you know, 5,000 people. And you can specifically target who those 5,000 people yeah. are. And you are only got to spend, you know, 10, 20 bucks. He's yeah. like, we'd have to get posters printed. We'd have to get glue. We'd have to march around the city. We'd have to put these banners up.
0: And none of it was measurable.
1: And none of it was measurable. And you were just hoping that someone would see it and that that person may be interested in what you were doing. So even though, I, don't, I think we're, it's just a, a privileged problem for our generation to have. Totally. Where we're like, oh, we can't get a million people to see our thing for free.
0: Yeah, without paying a cent. And I think, yeah. you know, this is where a lot of people get frustrated, you know, that Facebook advertising, it is, it, look, it's so much more expensive than it used to be. You know, yeah, gone are the days where you could boost a post for $5 and actually yeah. get some good reach out of it. But we have to remember it's giving us access to yeah. so many things and to so many more people that we... Otherwise, we'd never have had, had access to. Yeah. And I mean, data is king.
1: And it keeps changing with all the different rules that keep getting rolled out. But like, you can still get some pretty good data. Um, oh,
0: I love it. And you can make some really smart decisions from it.
1: What we've noticed with Global League and the music is that we can release two songs. One, we can think this is going to be an absolute cracker. And one, we can be like, this is a good song, but we don't know how it's going to go. Yeah. And sometimes the one you're not sure about how it's going to go goes much better than the one that you've got real big hopes
0: for. Always the way.
1: And you're like, okay, why? But it just goes to show that our opinion and the artist's opinion is just one opinion, Mm -hmm. but put it out to market and see what the people want to do with it, you know, see which song's vibe. And um, we were talking just yesterday or the day before, like Drake, I think, has come out and announced that I'm not doing a single run for his latest album. I'm just dropping the whole album. I think it was Drake. I can't remember. It might yeah, not right. Okay. He's like, I'm going to let the fans decide what the best song is. Who am I to pick the lead Which single ones? and yeah. think, this is this is my best song, so I'm going to lead with this single and this is going to be the hit single. I love that. He's like, I'm just going to drop however many tracks and let the fans decide.
0: I was totally that kid that used to walk down to Big W with my five cent pieces of 4.95 to buy a single. And then you'd buy the album and you'd always love another song more. Yep. And it's like, why? like, why did they not put that one out? Yeah. Or the single would have the instrumental. You're like, well, I don't want to sing along to that song. I want to sing along to the other one.
1: Yeah. No, the singles are always cool when you never knew what the additional songs were going to be. Oh. that would always be one or two.
0: See, the, the kids these days will never understand that. No. You know, the surprises.
1: Never understand having to go somewhere to get a song. It's
0: all in your pocket now. Talk to me about, we've had this conversation before as well. Obviously, Meta is evolving at a rapid pace. We're now looking at different business manager interface. We're looking at different ads manager. Everything is changing. But we were discussing the other day about how it seems like nothing's talking to each other. Yeah. How how do you feel like that's going to get sorted? Because at the moment, it's actually not, it's not user-friendly.
1: I'm going to throw out a really controversial statement and say, I don't think Facebook or now Meta has ever been user-friendly.
0: Could not agree more. Ad manager sucks.
1: It, every evolution of their platform has made it more complicated and more difficult, and it wasn't easy to begin with. Mm. Like, it's just, I, I often wonder if it's genius or, like, because you can set up an ad account and then it's so hard to make changes to it. Like, you can just spend a lot of money because you can't get into it to pause your campaign properly or whatever. Yeah. Or if, like, I don't know, I just, I feel like they would, not that they need to make more money, but I feel like they'd make a lot more money if their platform was Absolutely. intuitive. Absolutely. And it's just getting more and more complicated. Having a business manager, having an ad manager, having a page manager, having to add assets to each of those things and link each of those things and provide a code to this person and provide a code to that person. And yeah.
0: Well, you know, know. particularly like for yourselves, obviously needing to have access to artist accounts Mm -hmm. and obviously we have access to client accounts. For the fact that even myself and my team are getting confused at the moment because what what we see on one client's account will look completely different on another client's. Everything's different. And then you think you've added yourself as full admin to business manager, but yet you don't have access to the Facebook page. Yeah. How?
1: Yeah, so you can set up an ad and you can set it to target Instagram, but it's like you don't have Instagram connected to this ad account, even though you're added in on basically everything. And then you've got to go in and add the asset. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's wild. It took it's
1: me wild. ages to figure that out.
0: Well, look, and this is the thing too, I think, you know, we were talking about security earlier and I think security is a really big thing with Instagram. We noticed a massive surge in hacking, particularly through COVID and... Mm the amount of people that did not have proper security or business accounts with that same login to their personal and their business, yep. asking for trouble. Yeah, you know, You've know you got to spend the time to set these things up properly because again, this is essentially borrowed. Social media, we don't own this stuff. Yep. If you're not securing it, you could lose it.
1: If someone logs in and starts spamming people from your account, you can lose your whole account. Yeah, And it wasn't even you
0: exactly right. Like it's not even worth it. So, you know, uh, my advice for anyone, make sure you've got two factors set on, make sure you've got separate logins for your personal accounts and your business Instagram. Make sure your Facebook um, business manager is set up with a business. It's not attached to a personal account. And make sure your ad account is on a personal account. There's nothing worse because as soon as someone knows your name and they've hacked into one thing, it's all downhill from there. Yeah, we're funny before, you know, we'll say... About, um, you know, your IT. When someone's Instagram ha- account gets hacked and they ask us for help. I don't know. Yeah. I wish I had the answer.
1: I wish I could email the uh, dispute resolution person's personal email at yeah. Instagram and say, hey, Joe, can you fix this problem for me? Yeah.
0: yeah. I can't, I can't, they've changed all the contact details. So for all, I, for all you know, I could be some random, but I'd like access to this account again. Yeah. You know, I lost my whole account. It was last year. We had to start again from yeah. nothing. And I got it back. They said it was a mistake. Then they was gone again. Then I got it back. They said it was a mistake. Then it was gone again. And then n- ever since, never got it back.
1: We actually, one of the one of the artists that released on our label a while back had the same thing and was just going round and round in circles. It was like you need to click this email and send this thing, and then it send was, the
0: photo with the code.
1: Yeah, and then it was like your account has been reactivated, and then the next day it would be deactivated again, and it'd have to go through the same process. And this was going on for weeks. Yep. And he came to me and he's like, "Do you know? Have you ever experienced this before?" And I'm like, "No, I've never seen this before." But it was just a constant loop of doing the thing it said, getting reactivated, getting straight away deactivated again, having to go through that. And there was no way that he could figure it out. I think he eventually figured it out. I don't have to ask him. Really? How he figured it out. But um,
0: most people just cut their losses, like yeah. we did. Yeah. And go. You know what? I'm just going to start again because I don't really have another option yeah. right now. Luke, thank you so much for your time. I feel like you are such a wealth of knowledge in so many different areas.
1: Old and wise.
0: Oh, well, he doesn't look a day over 20. But as always, you can join us on the DigiTalks Facebook group. Any questions for Luke or any questions for myself? And always, any ideas or things you want to learn about a little bit more, we are all ears. Thank you, Luke, again for your time. And we will see
1: you next time.